proud of my nieces and nephew. If I knew they were going to sing that song, I think we'd be speaking about the Sabbath today. <clears throat> but it's a wonderful time set apart, um, a sanctuary in time, and a sanctuary carved out in our hearts. Well, as we uh, begin this morning, let's just uh, bow our heads one more time, and uh, I'm going to kneel. So, Father in heaven, <clears throat> so we've entered this, truly this sanctuary in time that you have set apart from the very beginning of creation as a time when you come down in a special way to meet with your people. We just, again, invite your Holy Spirit to be here. I pray that your Holy Spirit can speak through the Bible and through the words that you've given and that it would be clear to each of our hearts. May all that is said and done be for your honor and your glory. May Jesus be lifted up. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we read our scripture this morning about the books being open, the court seated, it brings back memories <clears throat> to my mind as even a teenager, even as a little child, having nightmares about the topic of judgment. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you who particularly have grown up as Seventh-day Adventists can remember a time when you would fear that maybe tonight is the night that the books would be open and the heavenly judgment going on would come to my name? Remember feeling that way? I see Brant's nodding his head. He and I grew up in the same era. But many of you have grown up with this visions of judgment. And it didn't strike happiness and joy. It struck fear. And I would go to bed and go to sleep praying, Dear Lord, if there's anything I haven't confessed, I please just <clears throat> I, I, I forgive me of my sins so I could at least go to bed knowing that if the judgment came up that night, that there would not be anything unconfessed that would be in the way. And we've grown up as Seventh-day Adventists with a concept of judgment. And now, <clears throat> seems like in these last generations, I'm getting old now, but there's been another generation, or maybe two, we don't hear much about that. Kind of was out of my mind for a while. And then for about the last three years, I've started having nightmares about judgment again. It happened about four years ago when I actually saw a patient of, that was a patient of one of my partners. He had been asked to see this patient, make sure that everything would be as optimized as possible with his heart, and uh, asked me to just do an angiogram, a heart catheterization, just to look at the arteries. And then, lo and behold, there was quite a bit of plaque in his arteries. Now, that's not that unusual. One out of every two Americans walking around over the age of 45, hopefully not in this group, but one, over the, one out of two, 50% of all Americans over the age of 45 have heart disease. Most of us will walk around with it and never know it, but 10% will start having symptoms, which is manifested as angina. And as we talked about Mary Sluter, the solution is if it's very, very, very tight arteries that you may actually have to have bypass surgery 
or a stent. But um, in the last few years, we're discovering that it's really not bypass surgery and it's really not stents that make people live longer. It's making lifestyle changes. And so even though I do lots of stents and I send people for heart surgery, if at all possible, I try to optimize people's lifestyle, make sure we get their blood pressure down, their diabetes under control, get their weight down to their ideal Encourage them to stop smoking and to begin exercising, and I advocate a plant-based diet, and I now also advocate that my patients take one day off in seven to rest and to restore their minds. And so these are the things that I teach my patients, and so as I met with this patient, who happened to be a pastor, um, I just saw him one time, one day, right after the test, and I said, yeah, you have heart disease, but you've been able to exercise, you've been active Um, these are the things we need to work on. I think you can get through the surgery. And my partner thought he could get through the surgery. And then a week or two later, he went and had surgery on his spine. We weren't at all involved in that. Unfortunately, there were complications. The spine surgery should take two or three hours. His took eight and a half to nine hours. He got too much fluids, and he got very out of breath. Um, His heart couldn't actually take it. And uh, he entered this spiral that we call a death spiral of cardiogenic shock. And a day after his surgery, he died. Why did this bring back feelings of judgment? Because a year went by and I got notified that I was now being sued by his widow. And for three years, I can wake up in the middle of the night, three in the morning, four in the morning. My brother would probably have a word for this. Just thinking, oh, it's playing back in my mind. Is there anything I could have done differently? I am now going to be judged. And you know, we have this thing in America called the, uh, the, the speedy justice system. Well, this dragged out for four years. And just a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, it was a week and a half long trial. Went through the process of picking a jury. Any of you been before a court before? You're looking over, and since this is a civil trial, fortunately not a criminal trial, there's only eight jurors. And uh, they brought in 172 potential jurors. And the two attorneys went back and forth to try to pick the people that, well, mainly to kick out the people that they all had concerns about. And as soon as people figured out that they could get off a week and a half long jury by just saying, oh, yeah, no, I, I, I respect doctors too much. I could never say anything bad about them. I, I can't, I'm, I'm biased. They kicked them off. Or, oh, yeah, uh, my son, when he was four, and that was 50 years ago, he had a bad outcome. I'm biased. And they kicked them off. And you're looking at these eight people. Got stuck with the ones we didn't actually hear say anything. They kicked everybody else out. And they got down to eight people that are now going to decide your fate, and then two alternates. And these people were sitting over on the side. They'd never make eye contact with you. They never had a smile. They were just stone-faced, and you're looking at them thinking, are they connecting with me? Judgment. And week after week for three years, waking up, having it reflect what's going to happen. I wasn't going to go to jail, but it's your reputation. It's everything you work for. No doctor wakes up in the morning thinking, who am I going to kill today? But nevertheless, 
bad things do happen in this world. And so, <clears throat> facing judgment. Well, there's a judgment scene in the Bible, so I'd like you to turn over to the um, book of John, chapter 8. Actually, there's a lot of judgment scenes in the Bible. The book of John, chapter 8, a story you guys all know, and we've grown up hearing about it. And uh, we'll just make a few observations here, and then we're going to look at this concept of judgment. So starting, I'll start with verse 2. Actually, just start with verse 1. It says it's a short verse. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. Were the scribes and Pharisees really that concerned about this woman? They were over and over and over again trying to trap Jesus. They try to put him into these predicaments where there's no right answer. And in this one, they thought they had him because the Jews weren't allowed to actually inflict the death penalty because they were under Caesar. They were under Rome, and so they couldn't actually... They couldn't crucify Jesus without getting Pilate's permission. So they couldn't stone somebody and imply the death penalty. And so if Jesus says, yes, the law says to stone her, so stone her, then he would be out of sync with the Romans. But if Jesus said, well, forgive her, he would be out of sync with the law of Moses. And so this is a perfect predicament to try to trick somebody up. And I can remember being on the stand in court. Now, these attorneys, the accusing attorneys, they don't ask you, Dr. Schwartz, can you just explain to us everything that happened? No, they try to put words in your mouth. And they will say, well, Dr. So-and-so said that this and this has happened. Would you agree with him? They only want a yes and no answer. They don't want me to explain anything. They want to lead me along saying, well, I agree with him and I disagree with him, or you got to disagree with your partner, you got to disagree with somebody, or they're going to trip you up. Sorry, I'm making it hard for the camera guy up front, <laughs> but uh, you got your work cut out for you. They want to trip you up, and that's the very predicament that Jesus was in. And what did Jesus do? He didn't say a word. He just stoops down. And he just begins writing. And he writes, and one by one, as the Pharisees and the scribes start looking at what he's writing, they go, hmm, and they just disappear. And you know the story. Jesus is left alone. With just he and this woman, all the accusers have fled. And Jesus says to her, he raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go in sin no more. As Seventh-day Adventists, we live in a war zone. A war zone of ideas that are going around in this world. 
These ideas at one point were floating around the whole universe, but now they've been confined to play out just in this world. And it's playing out in this world kind of as the trial before the whole rest of the universe to see if God is right and Satan is a liar or to see if Satan is right and God is a liar. And so this little planet of ours is really the theater of the universe. This court scene in the Bible over and over uses this court analogy. Before we make any conclusions, let's go back to the book of Judges. The whole book is titled after a courtroom scene. We're going to turn over to Judges chapter 2. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. I still hear pages rustling, so Judges chapter 2, verse 16. So what happened? The book of Judges is occurring in the days before there was a king. The Israelites had settled in the land for the most part, and uh, the Bible says in the book of Judges on several occasions that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And sometimes that wasn't very good. And usually, the people would get themselves into trouble. They would, they would go away from God's laws. They would start worshiping idols. They would start trying to be like the heathen. And pretty soon, they'd be victim to or open to their enemies coming in to defeat them. And... Um, This was the case. In verse 11, it says that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They were serving the gods of their time. They were essentially just going along with their culture, just like we are tempted to do in our day. What happens when God's people who forsake him find themselves in trouble and then turn back to him? So it says in verse 14, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them and sold them into the hands of their enemies. Now God essentially keeps a watch over his people. He protects us from the world. He protects us from not having to have the diseases that the rest of the world has because we have a health message. But if we break the health message and we don't follow it, does God bring disease on us? The Bible reads that way sometimes, that God gave them over, but what he's doing is he just has to withdraw his protection because we are out of sync with his laws and his practices. And when God withdraws his protection and we want to eat like the rest of the world, then we're going to get cancer like the rest of the world. And so natural things happen. But the good thing is that down in verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the day of the judge. So Israel would be up 
and down and up and down in their spiritual experience. And what would God do? He would allow the natural consequences, but then he would always send what? A deliverer. The deliverer was the judge. Judgment is the time of deliverance. And the whole book of Judges shows this. You can see it with Gideon. You can see it with Samson. You can see these people that God raised up. Some of them, like Samson, you wonder how God was able to even use him. But God even used Samson to the point that Samson is recorded in the Hall of Faith. Most of his life was a life of lost opportunities. But yet, in the very end, Samson lived by faith, and he accomplished more through his death than he did through his life. Kind of sad and kind of hopeful, because despite how messed up our lives are, despite how much we've been a bad influence or a bad witness, if we can still give our lives to God, he can still use it and still do great things. And we can help be deliverers. Turn over one more page. Let's look at this again in Judges chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, just to make this point. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel. What's another word for the word deliverer? A judge or a savior, but a judge. The Lord raised up judges. He raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. This case Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Why did that land have rest? Because when the judge was raised up, he fought off the enemies and he taught the people to forsake their idols and to return to God. And as long as they did, they had rest. And when they forgot that, they had unrest. And sadly, the whole up and down history of Israel is one of turning to God and then forsaking God turning to God and then forsaking God even more than their fathers did. And of all the kings, it's written, he did evil on the side of the Lord. He even did worse than his father did. It got worse and worse and worse. And every once in a while, the Lord would send a, a, a prophet. He would send somebody who could deliver them. Samuel was a judge in Israel. Samuel was a deliverer. So, Let's just look back um, to Luke chapter 11, 52. Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, those who were the deciphers of the law, and therefore they were the lawyers. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. 
You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as, is, as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him with many things. This is what lawyers do. Lawyers accuse you. They cross-examine you. They're out to get you in so many cases. <laughs> There's also good lawyers. So I had a lawyer who was defending me, and I had a lawyer who was accusing me on behalf of his um, of the plaintiff. And so this is the scene. But do we, as Seventh-day Adventists, have an accuser? Who? What's he called? The great deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. He is constantly trying to convict us. And as we looked at the very first story, the woman caught in adultery, does he really care that much about us? He's just using us like pawns to get to who? He's trying to discredit God before the whole universe. He's trying to discredit Jesus. And so there is an accuser of the brethren who goes about even as a roaring lion. There's an accuser who accuses us before the throne day and night. There is an accuser. What do we need? Deliver. So let's turn over to John chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus has a curious statement here. I'm going to read verse 20 first. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. Who is the judge? Jesus but Jesus is also our defense attorney. Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus is our savior. And yet it says here Jesus is what? Our judge. And in Hebrew times, this was not a foreign concept to the Hebrew mind because if someone accused someone of wrong, Let's say that I'm accusing my brother of stealing one of my lambs. <laughs> he wouldn't do that. <clears throat> but if he did, and I, sir, first of all, shouldn't take my brother to court, right? But if I did, I would take him up before the judge. The judges, like Samuel in those days, would stand in the gate, or he'd sit in the gate, and he would hear the pleas of the people. So I would come as the accuser, but he, the judge, would actually be your defender. And the evidence would have to be so overwhelmingly against you that the judge would finally say, I can't find a way to, to uh, defend you. The evidence is so overwhelming. But he would look for every way possible to defend you, if it's at all possible, against the accusation. And so Jesus, our Savior, 
our Redeemer, our Deliverer, is also our Judge. Now, Jesus says something kind of curious just a few verses over in John 8, 15. What does he say? You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. What's going on here? Sounds like a spiritual kind of passing of the buck, right? First of all, the Father doesn't judge. Now, he's committed judgment to the Son, Jesus says, well, over here, I judge no man. Then over in John chapter 12 is another little bit of information about this. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 46, that I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus' primary purpose is not to convict us that we are wrong and that we are lost. His primary purpose is to convict us that we are saved and that we belong to him. And he is here to try to redeem us, to deliver us, to ultimately save us and to have us in his kingdom. He is the one that is deflecting the accuser's claims because he covers us in his righteousness. But then he says in verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus isn't looking to dig up anything on us. But Jesus has given his word. If you follow his word, you have life. But if you are standing against his word, then we have really judged ourselves. And it becomes obvious that we're not one of his. All right, so as Seventh-day Adventists, let's turn back over to Daniel. The book of Daniel... We can look at Ezekiel. And actually, before we go to Daniel, let's just look at a couple passages in Isaiah on our way there. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. What's it say? So in every trial, there are witnesses. I was a witness in my own trial. But you can bring in hired witnesses. And of course, they brought in five witnesses. Some of them were paid $20,000 for the day to come in and say things that, well, Dr. Schwartz, um, if he would have just sent this patient for heart surgery first, then he'd be alive now. Well, that's completely unproven and goes completely against all the clinical trials. Turns out, really, that if you go through heart surgery, you've got about a 5% risk that you might not stand that. And then after heart surgery, you still got to go through the next surgery, and you still have a 3 to 5% risk. And heart surgery doesn't lower the risk. But you can pay people to say just about anything you want. <clears throat> but they had five witnesses. We had one. 
We had the one from the University of Michigan who actually wrote the guidelines over the past 20 years as to what the risks are with surgery, and that was sufficient to convince the jury. So witnesses are very important. So in this cosmic trial going on before the whole universe, focused on our little world, who are the witnesses? What's it say? Ye are my witnesses. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were the ones on trial. Well, we like to focus on ourselves, and sometimes it feels like we're the center of what's going on. But we're not the focus. The accuser uses us to get to God. But God uses us to show or to demonstrate his character before the world. So, ye are my witnesses. You can look at verse 12. I have declared in saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses. You can see the same thing in chapter 44, verse 8. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Well, it turns out in our world that it's really God who's on trial. You see it every day in the people that we talk to at work. In the collegiate class, we're talking, so some, many of the, our young people in this church are working in healthcare. It's amazing because it gives us an opportunity to minister to people that are hurting and in need. But we talked about it today. There are people out there thinking bad things about either God's people but ultimately about God. I run across um, people from all walks of life, and not a day goes by that I don't hear someone say, why is God doing this to me? Why did God bring cancer to my mother? Why is God allowing my husband to suffer from heart disease? God gets the blame every single day. We are his witnesses. I have the opportunity then to say, wait a minute, that's not God who caused lung cancer. God is in the business of trying to save, not to cause cancer. There's an accuser out there. The devil is trying to destroy as many as he can and have the ability to actually set the record straight. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a young gentleman in my office who's got high blood pressure and hypertension and heart disease. He's only about 38 years old. He has a ponytail down to here. He's kind of uh, an interesting fellow. And I said, by the way, John, one of the things I offer to do is have a prayer. Would that be all right if I prayed with you? He goes, oh, Doc, you remember, I'm I'm an atheist. And I used to say, okay, and just change the subject as fast as possible. Now I say, well, that's really curious. Um, I imagine that you were religious at one point. And he said, "Uh, yeah, I grew up in a charismatic home. And I said, okay, well, that explains a lot. There's a lot of good charismatic people who believe in God, but I believe that they're misquoting the Bible as to what God is like. And, of course, any rational person would probably reject that. He goes, huh, so what do you believe? 
And so it opens the door to have the opportunity to explain what God's character is truly like. Another atheist in my office, Dr. Schwartz, I don't see how if God is a God of love, there could be the Holocaust. And there could be all these things in the Bible about genocide and all these bad things that have happened. And I said, well, you don't understand what the Bible's teaching. And in Revelation especially, it teaches that this little world is the theater of, we call it the, the, uh, the great controversy. There is this war going on, and God has confined it to this world, and so God has to allow these bad things to play out so that the whole rest of the world can be immunized against letting that happen in their planet and in their world. And that's the great controversy. And he says, I've never heard it explained like that. And so he read a book that I recommended called God at War. All around us, day in and day out, there are people questioning God. And they have a warped view of who he is. Usually that they've inherited from their parents, from their teachers, from our culture, from everything around. They've been beat up by Christians, so to speak. God has been misrepresented and they have made their decisions based on what they see around them and they reject Christianity altogether because of the experience with one bad Christian or the picture of God that they learned in their Catholic church. Who would want to serve a God who is going to torture you day in and day out for eternity? Well, we have the opportunity to set the record straight because we are the witnesses. And so how long is this going to go on? Now let's turn over to our scripture from this morning, Daniel. Ezekiel, Daniel. So David read Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place. Thrones were set up in the earthly kingdoms so that the king could take his place and he could judge the nation. So this is judgment scene. A judgment scene in the cosmic conflict. The Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head was that of pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. And a thousand thousands ministered to him. That's a hundred million people ministering, or a hundred million angels ministering to him. The court was seated and the books were opened. This is judgment. And Daniel's watching this. We don't have time to look at the whole passage. But let's just turn over to chapter 7, verse 21. Daniel is talking about this horn. That same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. God's people have been persecuted. God's people have had to flee to the wilderness. God's people have even been martyred. And they are being persecuted and destroyed and under attack until when? Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made. What was the judgment? Judgment was made in whose favor? Judgment was made in favor of the saints. Why do we fear the judgment when we already know the outcome? 
Judgment has been made in favor of each and every one of you sitting here. Judgment. Not guilty. The verdict of acquittal. Not because of anything we have done, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Now we can interpret this as it's time for the saints to go into that eternal kingdom. But I believe that it's talking about, because it goes over just a little bit farther onto 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed, that it's time right now, after 1844, that the saints claim the kingdom. Judgment has already been made in favor of us. We are the witnesses before the whole universe and before the whole world looking around us. The people that we work with at work, the people in our community, the people in our whole world, they need a clear-cut witness to testify to them about what God is like. And that's what Seventh-day Adventists have called, been called to do. And so as we close, let's turn over to Revelation chapter Let's pause on Revelation chapter 5. I think we'll take just a couple minutes there. And then we'll go to Revelation chapter 14. So Revelation and Daniel are very parallel books of prophecy. And both of them outline this. And so in Daniel chapter 5... Actually, Daniel chapter 4 is entitled, The Throne Room of Heaven. Revelation chapter 4, I'm sorry. So Revelation chapter 4, The Throne Room of Heaven. This is where this trial headquarters are taking place. And right after the seven churches, ending with Laodicea, it talks about chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll to loose its seals? Who is worthy to do this? Who's able to open up the history of the world? Who's able to explain this? Then I saw the angel proclaiming, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, and in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain. We are entering the Christmas season to commemorate that Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, came down to our very world, and entered into our very lives as a baby. But he also conquered when he died on the cross. So there was a lamb, though it had been slain, 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And what is the response? The whole onlooking world of a hundred million angels, the 12 elders, and those who are gathered there saying, worthy is the Lamb. It's just in our little world that we don't yet sing, worthy is the Lamb, very often. It's in our little world that we're not yet quite sure. Is he worthy? So let's turn over to Revelation chapter 14. Another passage that Seventh-day Adventists know very, very well. Why? Because this is the three angels' messages. These are the messages that Seventh-day Adventists are primarily to give to the world. Yes, we have a health message. Yes, we have the Sabbath message. Yes, we have the truth about the state of the dead. Yes, we have all these things, and those are all part of it. But our primary goal and our primary identity as Seventh-day Adventists, the thing that sets us apart from every other Christian, and the thing that gives us our marching orders are the three angels' messages. And so, verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. What gospel does he have? The same gospel that was preached to Abraham, right? The same gospel that was preached in David's time. To Daniel, to Nehemiah and Ezra. Is it the same everlasting gospel that Peter, James, and John preached? Is that the Apostle Paul? The everlasting gospel. What is the everlasting gospel? Jesus is the gospel. There was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world who died for your sins and mine. And what's it say? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of our judgment has come. Wait, whose judgment? Who's really on trial? Yeah, we've gotten swept up in it. For good or for bad, we are all swept up in this. But the devil really isn't concerned about what happens to us other than he wants to cause God as much pain as he can possibly bring. And so he is determined to take as many as he can with him and deprive God of being able to love the lost throughout all eternity. The devil wants to hurt God. It's God that is on trial before our world. It's God. I don't believe that God's any longer on trial among the universe. They have looked at the cross. They have seen what sin does. And they want nothing to do with it. But God still has to demonstrate to the onlooking universe that if he brings these ragtag rebels like us, like me, into heaven forever, will it be safe? And so there has to be a demonstration at the very close of time. 
my 144,000, those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. God is going to have a people through which he can write his law on their hearts. Ellen White says that when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come and claim them as his own. And the only reason that didn't happen 100 years ago in our Adventist history is because our spiritual forefathers did not believe. God is not on some magical timetable waiting until the 19 or the 2020s or the 1900s or the 2000s. Ellen White says clearly, we could have been in the kingdom before this, ere this, she says. It's not God's plan that we should still be here. God is waiting for witnesses. We're not the ones primarily on trial. Have you ever been afraid of a lamb? Somebody might have been bitten by a lamb, but most of us are not afraid of a lamb. That is the symbol that God holds up before the in-time humanity living on this earth as their judge and savior, the deliverer. Not somebody we should be running from, but there's a world out there that feels the wrath of the Lamb because they don't know the character of the Lamb. Some of them know the character of the Lamb and they will decide they want nothing to do with it. But most have not decided because they haven't seen. And that's what the judgment is all about. This is the time of judgment. This is the time of deliverance. This is the time for Seventh-day Adventists to stand up for witnesses about God's character of love. And when he has a people that will stand in reference to his character so clearly that they will not compromise and they can withstand the test, he will come back to claim them as his own. They will hear the verdict of acquittal. In my case, the jury was out for 10 minutes. And they came back in 10 minutes. We have a verdict. And you're thinking, well, 10 minutes, that's probably pretty good. But the, the uh, jury foreman hands the verdict to the, uh, bail- yeah, the bailiff. The bailiff then straightens out the papers, brings it up, and hands it to the judge. The judge didn't make the decision. The judge is merely reading the verdict. And our judge has already read the verdict. It's in favor of the saints. And there's no better feeling than to have been having nightmares for three to four years and to stand before the judge and to hear, we side on behalf of the doctor. Amen. Amen. Deliverance. No better feeling. And that's where we stand today as God's people. We already know the outcome. The only thing to be decided is which side are we going to stand on? Am I going to stand as a character witness on behalf of the Lamb who loved us more than he loved himself and was willing to give up eternity to come and be my 
defense attorney, to come and be my savior, to come and be my judge? Or am I going to side against him, side against the rest of the universe, and to forfeit life forever as I side with Satan's lies? That is what is going on. That is what we as Seventh-day Adventists are called. Our last verse, verse 12, Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Patience because they have been enduring. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. There was a woman caught in adultery. She was accused they didn't care about her. They were trying to get to Jesus. She was just a pawn being used for a bigger purpose. And there's a bigger purpose going on now. It's not about us. Our salvation is already sure. Jesus has already read, Behold, I have been. I have engraven you in the palms of my hands. The books in heaven is the books that the Lamb opens, the scroll. Jesus is the books. Your name has been written into him. And if you're in Jesus, you will be delivered and set free. This final great controversy, this final three angels' messages that have to go to the world, it's not about us. It's for his vindication and his honor. And so I think our closing hymn is hymn number 125, Joy to the World. <laughs> 